Well, welcome to the Biz News Power Hour this Thursday. Uh, I'm Alec Hogg, and with me in studio here in Johannesburg, as per always, is Stuart Lohman, our general manager, stroke managing editor. What's your total title now? I think we do it alls, aren't we, Alec? <laughs> do it alls, indeed we are. And it's lovely to have Nadia up here from the Cape. Nadia, you're going to be bringing us the headlines from the Joburg studio for a change. Yes, indeed. It's nice to be here. <laughs> and uh, in our virtual studio, all on his own, is Justin Rowe Roberts, who's been following all the markets and doing interviews today. Jan Portgita from Itteltal. Those numbers, Justin, were splendid. Unbelievable. The best on record for Itteltal. And I haven't just been doing that, Alec. I got my first jab today as well today. So, Bill Gates. <laughs> <laughs> As he should, as he should. But uh, no, congratulations on that, Justin, and uh, also on the interview. I think that we're going to find that many people will enjoy it, especially the Telltale shareholders. But uh, before we go into that, we've got quite a show coming up today. Pit Fulyun um, is our guest co-host. He's got a lot to talk about, the major issues of the day as mentioned, Jan Portgitter, which um, is the who's the CEO of Italtal. Justin spoke to him earlier. Uh, Stuart, we've then got Paul Whitburn, uh, and that's an interview that was done by our colleague Charles Boerter. Yes, it was, Alec. Uh, obviously, Charles an uh, asset management that type of mind, so he likes to pick up on these themes, and Paul's from Rosendale Partners. And they talk about China, which is obviously very topical in the commodity cycle, etc. So, very interesting interview. So, Justin, he's one step ahead of you, is he, on the CFA? Uh, Charles actually got his CFA, and you, you're on your way to it. Yes, he's a charter holder. Um, so, you've got to have the requisite four years' experience plus pass all three exams. I've got one more exam to go, and then I've got two more years of experience. Granted, I do pass my third exam. I, I can't believe how incredibly uh, well qualified these <laughs> colleagues of ours are, including our lawyer who spoke uh, to another lawyer today, Nadia. Yeah, it was interesting. It was like a little bit of my old life. And uh, w- what exactly did you talk to Paul Hoffman about? About the JSC finding the gross misconduct, finding upholding it against Chlope. So very interesting. All right. So the, uh, the Western Cape judge president uh, who is – presumably going to be uh, impeached or not. Anyway, you're going to, we'll you, see. We'll see. Mm. Have it a bit later. And all of that coming up in the show tonight. Before we get there, though, what's going on at biznews.com? What are people reading, Stuart? Alec, with um, Justin going for his COVID vaccine, it seems to be the theme that's of the day on the site. Uh, the most popular is uh, Chris Bateman's interview with Kamanthri Mudley, the uh, professor of medicine from the University of Stellenbosch, and how she was talking about how it's in the public's interest for everyone to get the vaccine. Um, and just behind that, we've got a former colleague from Media Connect, Greg Stewart, who wrote a mailbox, which is something we also encourage at BizNews, is to have sort of contributions from those, the, the community members. And he talks about how it's sort of moved towards fascism. Uh, so it's like this, a, a good balance of views there. So you've got the prof saying we should have mandatory <laughs> vaccines, and then the former publisher of The Citizen, Greg yeah. Stewart, saying uh, that's yeah. fascism. Wow. And number three? Uh, number three is your interview with Magnus yesterday on the investment world, which is very interesting. Uh, yeah. Nadja, uh, on the YouTube videos? So the best video over the last 24 hours was also the live stream of your interview with Magnus, regular co-host on Wednesdays, always has great insights. And then the live stream of your interview with Gigi Alcock was great because it was uh, upon us finding out those new unemployment rate and he just filled us in on the, un- what the informal sector and how that's not taken into account. And then the third video is the summary of your interview last week with Gerard Papenfuss of Miasa. Yeah, that was a, I'm surprised actually that the Gerard Papenfuss interview didn't get cracking a little earlier, but it's interesting to see now that it's, it's coming uh, together because he had some pretty uh, important stuff to say about Arcelor South Africa, not least that they've got import duty protection after Lakshi Mittal, who owns the company, uh, flew into South Africa for a day with Jacob Zuma back in 2016. Oof, what a story.
Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Okay, Nadia, the news headlines for today, please. A substantial majority of the Judicial Service Commission voted to uphold a gross misconduct finding against Western Cape Judge President John Hlope, paving the way for an impeachment process by Parliament. This will be the first time in SA's post-1994 history the JAC has referred a judge to Parliament for possible impeachment. The finding of gross misconduct earlier in 2021 by a Judicial Conduct Tribunal related to a 2008 complaint by all the then Justices of the Constitutional Court. The Justices complained that the Western Cape Judge President had sought to influence the outcome of a pending judgment relating to corruption charges against former President Jacob Zuma. State-owned airline company South African Airways has announced it will resume flights on the 23rd of September 2021. The wait is finally over. In just under a month, the striking and familiar livery of SAA will once again be visible in the skies as the airline resumes operations, the company said in a statement on Twitter. SAA will operate flights from Johannesburg to Cape Town, Accra, Kinshasa, Harare, Lusaka and Maputo in the initial phase of its relaunch. SA's greenhouse gas emissions increased 10% in the 17 years since 2000, according to the latest greenhouse gas inventory report, which was published by the Department of Environment, Forestry and Fisheries this week. The report is part of SA's obligations under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and has been compiled on a regular basis since 2000. The latest report provides data for 2017, and experts say that the lag in the data is not unusual as it is a lengthy and difficult process to compile. However, under the Paris Agreement, SA must reduce the lag to three years by 2024. Thanks, Nadia. Okay, Justin, what's going on in the markets? The JSC All Share Index is lower at 67,200. In the currency markets, the rand was slightly stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand 96 cents to the dollar, 20 rand and 51 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 56 cents to the euro. Gold is down at $1,785 an ounce. A Kruger Rand will put you back around 27,500 Rand. Brent crude is flat at $71.40 a barrel. And Bitcoin is down at 710,000 Rand per coin. Late on Wednesday, a dispute between Nigerian tax authorities and MultiChoice, Africa's biggest paid TV provider, intensified, showcasing the risk international firms face as the continent's largest economy tries to bolster revenue collections. Multi-choice was ordered by a Nigerian tribunal to pay 50% of a $4.4 billion tax bill. On Thursday, Multi-choice announced to shareholders that the fine was over-exaggerated and played down the allegations. The shares are up more than 7% on the JSE today. Sabanya Stillwater released its interim results with a diversified miner announcing a 4.8 billion rand dividend. One of the talking points in the commentary was its plan to convert its aging Beatrix West gold operations in South Africa's Free State province into uranium mine as part of a strategy to build a meaningful production of the fuel. Sabanya Stillwater CEO Neil Froneman said unlocking latent value by building uranium production would complement the firm's green metal strategy. The shares are slightly in the green on the JSE today. So interesting, that uh, story, because I remember spending time with Neil Froneman at a uranium mine, Africana Leases, which was an old gold mine that Neil became the owner, well, he became the CEO of African uh, Africana Leases, and that was turned into a uranium mine called Uranium One, which he then uh, listed on international markets. And eventually it was sold to the Guptas, would you believe it? And they called it Shiva, but it's there in, in Clarksdorp. So quite a, quite a long story uh, that now you're finding the old Beatrix gold mine uh, that Neil, who would know it very well from his days at, at Gencore, uh, which was, it was part of their stable, that he's now seeing the uranium potential in it. And I guess with the move to green energy, it makes a lot of sense, Justin. Exactly, Alec. I mean, we've seen it with Anglo Gold. We've seen it with Anglo Platinum. They're looking to go green. Shareholders are calling for it. And that's what Mr. Froneman's giving to them. And besides from the move to uranium, he's giving back a lot to shareholders. We've seen um, we see big buybacks and big dividends um, from these results today. Are you talking to him later this evening? Talking to him later this evening should be a very interesting conversation. I'm going to do my due diligence on the uranium part, which I don't know too much about, but I'm looking forward to his answers. 
Indeed you are. Well, that will be a good one. Stuart, you thought I forgot about the podcasting. Uh, uh, what are <laughs> the Biz News community listening to? That was the, the third leg of our uh, of our uh, chain that we talk about every very, day. Very similar theme to the Business TV on YouTube, Alec. The top listen to uh, podcast is Magnus Haystack's interview yesterday, uh, Gigi Alcock's interview on the informal sector, and then the Mantri vaccine uh, in, interview with Prof. Uh, K. Mantri Mudley. So it's interesting. It, it goes across all of the uh, areas. So you read about it on .com. You listen to it on the podcast or on Business Radio, on Spotify, etc., and then you watch it on YouTube on Business TV. Alec, I think we've got the perfect integrated newsroom in in this business because you've you do an interview on video, for instance, gets put onto YouTube. We pull the audio, put it onto a podcast. Team picks up the podcast, puts it onto dot com, and you cater for all all users um, methods of consumption. And I think it's fantastic. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Piet Fillion uh, always ends up the week for us uh, by pulling together all the strands. Good to be talking with you, Pit. Well, one of the people you're going to be meeting for the first time is uh, a, a guy I've got to know pretty well, Gigi Alcock. Uh, he's, he's an extraordinary human being. Uh, he was raised by activist parents in a mud hut in Masinga, which is even today the poorest municipality in South Africa. And uh, Gigi has applied this unique background uh, into understanding, in particular, the, the, the informal sector or what he calls the Kasi or Lokasi uh, economy. And he was saying that the in unemployment figures that we get from Stats SA don't reflect the reality in the world because if you go into the Kasi economy, you realize that there's massive unreported trade and e uh, economics that's going on. I just wondered whether uh, you had any thoughts on that, given that that I know you're a fan of transaction capital, which is one of the biggest beneficiaries, if you like, of the Kasi economy, and uh, and then perhaps other stocks that might benefit from this blind spot that so many South Africans have. Yeah, so so I think Gigi is quite right when he says that unemployment is not 40%. Uh, I think unemployment is less. Uh, the Kasi economy is, is big. Uh, the only problem, of course, is it's quite inefficient. Productivity in that part of the economy is quite low. So, you know, for good economic growth, you need not only a number of people employed increasing, but also their productivity increasing. That gives you good growth. Now, I think the productivity in the Kasi economy is probably lower than it might be in the formal economy, but it exists, it's there, and it's significant. So there's no doubt about mm. that. In terms of the beneficiaries, you know, I think the, the lower-end retailers and wholesalers, um, uh, like the shop right to the world, that, uh, and I think they can play with Boxer, and those, uh, those sort of guys, uh, I, should, I think, supply, the wholesalers supply a lot of product into that market, which is it gets resold in the so-called Kasi economy. So I think they, those are big beneficiaries. And you can see it, and you can see it in the numbers with the growth rates uh, exceeding economic growth rates. And I think it's because of that uncounted part of the economy that they supply. It's an interesting story and one that we're going to be paying a lot more attention to because in, in this time in South Africa, there's so much doom and gloom. And when you hear an unemployment rate of 45%, just, just logically, you'd think that there would be long queues of people uh, standing on the side of the road asking for jobs, but that isn't the case. It, it's. Uh, I was mentioning to him yesterday that if you go to the robots up here, uh, you will see people at the robots begging. But when you speak to them, they're Zimbabweans, yeah. primarily Zimbabweans anyway. Yeah. And uh, and homeless. There's 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 quite a lot of homelessness around. I think you'll see that a lot. So so I think there are problems. I mean, one shouldn't uh, pretend as if there are no problems. But I do think the problem might not be as big as a 40% problem, but it's still a significant problem that needs to be addressed and, and is not being addressed. So, so I, I don't think one should negate the problem. There is definitely a problem, despite the strong and thriving Kazi economy and despite whatever else is going on, there, there is a problem and it needs to be addressed. Yeah, he puts the unemployment rate, uh, the true unemployment rate, around 15%, but I guess that's a, a, a conjecture. Someone who is, is not yeah. um, inclined to conjecture is Magnus Haystack. He'll also be at the conference next week and magnus had a full go yesterday at old mutual and others who predict and forecast 
and what got his goat yeah. was he pulled yeah. out information that he'd, he'd kept one side. He said that Old Mutual uh, had, had raised a lot of money from investors by forecasting that South Africa would be the best performing stock market in the world. And he said it hasn't been. And uh, these people should be taken to task. And really what he said was that the financial services industry is not a gentleman's game. I know you've come against uh, or come up against uh, the marketing machines quite often. And how, how do you compete against that? Mm-hmm. When uh, I think you, I remember you telling me once about uh, you, you can't afford or you don't think it's a good investment to have these huge billboard adverts at airports, as an example. That's right. Yeah. No, so it's true. I think what Martin says is 100% true. The, the big investment uh, institutions, if one can call them that, are marketing machines. And the best form of marketing is to give clients a sense of comfort, a sense of security. And the best way to do that is by making some sort of forecast or prognostication about the future. And then the client feels that they're in good hands because you know what's going to happen. The sad truth is nobody knows what's going to happen in the markets. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the world, politics, markets, economies. Nobody knows anything about the future, but the marketing people will tell you all about the future and, and, and people like that and they have an affinity for that. And therefore, there's a good marketing practice. If that is your practice, it is good marketing practice. But why, where do they get it from? Surely the people in the investment division must say to them, we think that X, Y, and Z, and perhaps it just gets overblown in the telling. Well, I, I think you'll find that the incentives in institutions are mainly driven by the assets under management, the size of assets under management. So everybody's on board with that. You know, if the marketing people are growing with assets under management, the investment people earn more money. So they, you know, they're aligned with that and they will happily give the marketing people their forecast. Mm. And the, I suppose the, the lesson about all of that is just to be skeptical when you see people trying to predict or suggesting what the future is. Yeah. As always in investing, it's always caveat emptor. Buyer beware, be skeptical, be questioning uh, at all times. And, and don't accept forecasts on face value because they are not worth paper voting on. Yeah, but something I'd, I'd love you to give a little forecast on, because it just does seem so obvious right now, is on what's going to happen to these vaccine manufacturers. The whole world is saying whether you, you're taking a vaccine or not, and we've both had COVID, so we just, we'll put that to one side. But it appears now that the momentum for vaccinations is just overwhelming. Johnson & Johnson has come out this morning uh, by saying that it thinks a booster shot's a good idea uh, six months after the previous a vaccine when J&J was only supposed to have one vaccine, but now its tests are showing yeah. it's going to be nine times more effective. The Biden administration is saying we want vaccine shots six months after the last one. Uh, sorry, one other point was that Pfizer uh, are raising their prices by between 15 and 20% of the vaccines. Yeah. So whatever else you think about the morals or the ethics about vaccination, you've Got to see these guys are in a very strong position. The the people at certainly at the moment who are making vaccines, and I suppose you can also relay that back to South Africa, where Aspen will be making the J and J vaccine. Yeah, um, as far as I'm aware, Aspen is manufacturing the vaccine under license from whoever came up with the formula. Um, so yes, I think it's true the pharmaceutical companies will make money out of this. I'm not sure they'll make tons of money uh, because I think up to now the price has been kept quite low to curry favor with governments worldwide. But they will have pricing power in the future, as as you mentioned, they're putting up prices now. But having said that, over time, um, the pharmaceutical companies spent a lot of money on R&D, and they have come up with lots of really good medicines that have, and if you look at um, health stats, you know, longevity, babies born healthy, and those sort of things, the human health has improved dramatically over the past 100 years, and a, 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 a great Part of that improvement has come from the health or drug companies who have developed, who have spent a lot of money to develop drugs with high efficacy. So, so you know, if they make money out of this, I think it's a good thing. I mean, it's, it, these vaccines have been developed in record time. They're not 100% effective, but you know, they, they seem to be doing something positive. So I'm all for people making money by solving problems for other people. And the vaccine solves the problem for a lot of people. And you should make money out of that. That's, I think that's how the world should work, and it should work that way more often. But is it worth buying the shares now, the Moderna shares, the Pfizer shares, the J&J shares, and here in South Africa, the Aspen shares? Look, I, I, I think those share prices, you know, the market is a 
pretty good discounter uh, of what's going to happen in the future. That's why, that's why making predictions is, is, is so, it's, it's such a poor use of one's time because the market is very smart. I mean, it's hard to outpredict the market. It's collective wisdom. It's seen what's happening with vaccines. It's seen what it's seen what the drug companies are doing. How much they're investing in that, and it's priced that into it by and large. Uh, where you one makes money in investing is where you have a differential correct view based on underlying numbers and where maybe sentiment has gotten out of hand, either positively or negatively. Uh, and I don't think that's the case with the drug companies at this point in time. So I think they're pretty well priced. I don't think they're priced to make outsized investment returns, but they're probably okay where they are. So yeah, I don't think it's a huge opportunity there. No. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why... South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. I'm Justin Roberts of BizNews, and with me today is Jan Portgita, CEO of JSE Listed Ital Tile. Jan, before we get into the numbers, your incredibly successful journey at Ital Tile is coming to an end soon. It's been such a tough macroeconomic backdrop in South Africa to succeed for the better part of a decade now, especially within retail, where GDP growth is one of the primary drivers of the industry. When so many have got it wrong, how have you managed to get it right? Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I think these, these results are, are testament to the, to the agile response of, of our resilient team. Uh, our robust business model with uh, integrated supply chain, especially in these disruptive times, world-class manufacturing, uh, and then our trusted retail brands, which is a safe environment for customers to, to shop. And over and above that, I think our unwavering focus on continuous enhancement of the customer shopping experience, whether it's online or in stores, and then uh, we continue to invest in innovation and for the future. And I think our ethos of profit-sharing and partnership with our people is really what made the difference. And uh, I'm really humbled to, to have uh, led such an awesome team and being able to deliver such great results. Uh, so, yeah, we're very proud of, of, of the efforts of everybody during very, very difficult times. I find leadership is always a tough talking point. It's something that is done through actions rather than something that can be articulated in words. But what's your word of advice to any current business owners, prospective CEOs, divisional heads, and the youth looking to replicate similar success? It's always difficult to talk about leadership, but one thing for me, it has to be authentic. Uh, you really need to be an authentic leader that can connect with people at, at different times and understand what people are going through. And really trying to, you know, very much our culture is to roll up your sleeves and, 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 and set the right example. And, and I think during tough times, that's when real character is tested. And that's where real leadership is needed. And, and you, you constantly have to create that hope direction for the people and then walk the talk. It's not for me to advise other leaders. I think uh, each one needs to define their own way that uh, they can get the best out of, out of people and... Uh, live up to their own full potential because I think there's so much potential in people that uh, we are not extracting and, and to really get people to as a combined unit to deliver so much more. On to the results, undoubtedly one of the best on record for Ital in its 50 year plus history. The home improvement trend that emerged from COVID has been a big tailwind for the business. This trend is evident. We've seen it in MassMart's Builders Warehouse and Spa's Builders Numbers. But is this uptick in earnings sustainable? Yeah, I think notably the industry did benefit from, from this enforced stay at home with change in lifestyle and, 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 and priorities. But, you know, we've been on a journey where we, where we focus on a lot of initiatives over, over three, three odd years. And I think it just came together uh, for us uh, during this period. And uh, I, I guess we focus on things that's within our control, our sales levers, cost leadership, productivity, the, the high performance culture. So although we benefited from it, it is uh, a lot of the things that we've done, you know, that, that helped us uh, not only to get the volume growth, to get the margin improvement, um, 
to to really generate a lot of cash. So uh, despite a, a bit of a of a tailwind, you still need to go and execute. And you know we really try to bring affordable fashion, which we say is the right product at the right time and place uh, for our customers. And some of the innovations in the retail side through through the scanners or what we've done on, on, on our web or in the distribution through our transport management system or in the manufacturing through our Ecotech tiles, which um, uh, really, you know, uh, it, it's, it's world class in the sense it's less CO2 emission. Um, it's some of the latest technology. And, and, and I think all of those things combined with, like I said earlier, our people really giving us a uh, a step change, and uh, yes, we know that uh, this uh, DIY trend won't 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 be there forever. But we we try to focus on the things that's within our control, and really try and drive that. Uh, and you know, uh, we can't change change all the uncertainty because there's a lot of uncertainty. You know, whether it's the sluggish uh, vaccine rollout, the low consumer confidence, the very very high unemployment, crime, corruption, you name it. There's so many things that, 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 that is going against us, but you can't spend your life worrying about those things that's outside your control. And we know there's a sense of fatigue. So rather try to be creative, control what you can. And, you know, even our disruptive marketing campaigns, whether it's the Waza Kaya campaign for CTM or, uh, or, or the CT, uh, the CT Winner campaign for CTM, the Waza Kaya for Top T, we, we're just trying to to connect with our customers and, and give them what they deserve, which is beautiful homes. And, you know, maybe the low interest rates did benefit us a lot, uh, where people are going back and investing money in, in, in their most important asset, which is their houses. So from that point of view, we're very happy. But we do believe, you know, we spent a, a, a billion in CapEx in the, in the previous financial year, and we'll most probably spend another 900 million in the, in the new financial year. We keep on investing. Uh, to 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 bring to to bring the right product to to our customers and 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 improve their lives that they can feel good about something. Shareholders are smiling, Jan, with a very generous distribution in the form of an ordinary and special dividend. Whilst, as you said, still managing to grow the business organically, capital allocation often makes or breaks the market's opinion on a management team. What process does the Itzeltal board follow when it comes to capital allocation? I think we're quite a conservative uh, group and always been conservative, uh, you know. Uh, we, 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 we don't like uh, borrowing. Uh, we've got very low gearing. People sometimes accuse us of uh, a lazy balance sheet. But we like to be conservative. And when we invest, we like to invest in things that we understand and that we know. Uh, and and when, when we make those investments, we, we, we're quite confident that we will be able to, to deliver on it. And, and I think our track record over... Over many years, talk to that. Um, yes, uh, if you put a lot of volume through our business model, uh, it generates a lot of cash. And that's why for four consecutive years, we could return uh, uh, excess cash to our shareholders. Uh, we obviously do all the normal stuff, the capex, the buyback of shares, all of those kind of things. But if we, if we, if we look at our forecast, uh, we're very happy. Uh, we keep our dividend uh, cover consistent at two and a half cover, which we think is the right cover for our business. But whenever there's excess cash, the first thing that we will do is return it to, to, to shareholders uh, to say thank you for, for their support. And, uh, you know, as a proudly African company, it is always nice to, to be close to your roots. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, as, as a team, we're still very humbled. Uh, we, we, we know it's going to get tougher out there. Um, so, yeah, you're only as good as your last result. And there's a lot of hard work that's lying ahead for us in the in the new year because uh, there will be more challenges. But I guess what, what was really nice for us of, the, of this set of results is the fact that it was double-digit sales and profit growth across all business units, across all geographic areas, uh, uh, across uh, all merchandise categories. So all in all, it was a very, very good result um, that, uh, that, that, that we've delivered. And, and we need to continue on, on that success, even if things are tougher out there. We will just have to take more share of wallet and share of uh, share of market. Following on from that, Jan, the 2022 financial year has been underway for two months now. How is business going? Yeah, look, it's uh, it's, it's very early to 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 kind of start making predictions about it, but uh, there is a bit of a slowdown. What the main reason for that is, uh, you know, that's speculation. But uh, there is definitely a slowdown, and unfortunately, since the unrest is where we where we've seen, even in our commentary, we refer to it. 
up, uh, up uh, to the point of the unrest, we had sales growth, which drives obviously uh, all of the integrated uh, uh, models. We had sales growth of 14% up to that point. And subsequent to that, we've seen some, some decline. So that uh, customer psyche is negative. There's no doubt about it. And, and you know, hopefully we can get through this, uh, this period and, uh, and uh, uh, things will improve. But I don't think it's easy out there for, for any business and I don't think it's easy out there for any consumer or customer. I think we're all dealing with, uh, with a lot of, uh, lot of emotion, uh, a lot of uncertainty. And uh, hopefully we can have some positive news coming through, some, some clarity, uh, which is so important because, you know, that psyche, uh, whether people spend money or not, is, uh, is, is, is critical for, for, and growth is fundamental for us as a country. We really need growth, um, uh, and, and as a business, we will open new stores. Uh, we, we will invest in, in more capacity uh, because we understand the importance of, of growth um, to create uh, more opportunities for our people as well. So, so growth is top of mind for us, but it's not going to come easy. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and you've been listening to Italtal CEO Jan Potgieter. I'm joined in studio today by Paul Whitburn of Rosendale Partners. Paul, it seems that almost every day material developments are coming out of China with regards to almost everything economic and derivatively in the bulk commodities, which is very important to South Africa. What are your thoughts? The Chinese market and bulk commodities is particularly interesting. I think it's it's something that I've been looking at for a decade and probably been calling for the, the top of the, the Chinese property market for as long. But it's interesting to, to look at the large property developers in China currently. And Evergrande is the largest property developer in China. And currently, the stock has been, been completely smashed. Bonds are trading at 20 cents um, in the dollar. And they've got serious liquidity problems at the moment. Um, not yet solvency problems, but I think that probably comes later. And you've got to now take a step back and say, you know, is this finally the point where the Chinese infrastructure build and the Chinese build, building of residential apartments and all the rest of it comes to an end? And if that is the case, that would have huge ramifications for, for bulk commodities specifically iron ore. As you know, all the growth of iron ore globally has come from China. Uh, we may see a little bit of the U.S. come back with their big infrastructure bill, but really everything's been going um, through China. And, and what we see today is most guys are mining iron ore for $20 and here in South Africa for $40 a, a ton, but it's trading at close to $200 a ton in China. And in all likelihood, that iron ore price should revert back to an incentive price, which we think is probably 70 to $80 per ton. Now, if you assume that price with many of these uh, local iron ore producers, I think shareholders would be in for a rude awakening if that comes to bear. It'll be interesting to see what happens in China because obviously everyone's involved in terms of local government. Um, the local governments get all their, their taxes raised by, by selling off land, and that's their biggest tax income. There's no property tax in China per se, so the question is, can these local governments then start charging tax on those properties to fill the holes? But this puts China itself, which who has been on a gargantuan credit expansion over the last decade, it really puts it in a perilous uh, position at this point. So... I think it's, it's interesting times ahead, for sure, for China. What do you think is their next move? What they've done in the past is really set up sort of financial institutions and, and use their big banks to, to sweep the bad debts and problems under the carpet. I think what we're seeing now with an Evergrande, which is, is so large, that it's going to be very, very difficult to sweep it under the carpet. So we've, we've actually seen some strange moves where they've kind of gone to the bigger businesses that are very cash flow generative to, to ask them to buy stakes in underlying businesses. So Tencent was asked to actually bail out a subsidiary of, of Evergrande. You, you're sitting in a communist state, people forget that, and they can tap anyone on the shoulder and say, look, we need some help to bail out this business, we need liquidity here, 
you're very profitable. Could you, you help us out? So I'm not sure how they're going to deal with it. It's, it's going to be very, very difficult because it's been, this has been a 20 year buildup, even 30 years. So, you know, this would be a, the first big drawdown, um, in terms of capital fixed formation in China. And they will go through it at a p- period where their debt to GDP is also very high. So um, it, it doesn't look like a, a very good outcome for them. I also see in Tencent's results, uh, Tencent is donating, I think, almost $7 billion to the public good. We see it already because this week China raised the flag and said, look, you're going to lose your, your tax incentives in China. So... I don't know if anyone's noticed, but Tencent and Alibaba um, pay very little tax. Um, you know, it's between 10 and 15% tax rates, where the sort of tax rate is close to 20 to 25% in China. So already the government's kind of said, look, those incentives will fall away. You'll be taxed the sort of normal rate. So I think already that has been set in motion. They understand that you can't keep selling land um, to generate your tax revenue. They need to have more stable tax income. And why not? I mean, Alibaba and Tencent are, are wildly profitable and they can call what, what the tax rate, whatever they need. So, and this whole, the thing about strong businesses kind of taking over weak businesses to help in the chaos is, is also not China specific. I mean, I'll just push you back to the US of A where you had many of the strong banks take out all those weak banks during the Lehman crisis. And then you had that great sort of capitalist society essentially nationalize Fannie Mae um, from shareholders at that point. So, you know, everyone is quite quick to, to point fingers at China, but the U.S. itself um, is probably stuck with the same – did all the wrong things in that crisis too in terms of, you know, what they did to some shareholders in Fannie Mae and having the big banks, you know, help out and, and take over the weak banks. This commodity or bulk commodities downturn could have major repercussions. I see the rands already slipping a bit. So if these prices continue to tumble, we might find that the nice uplift or fiscal uplift we've seen from all the commodities companies uh, paying quite a bit of taxes could have very negative consequences for us. Uh, What is your opinion on this? Yeah, I think that's largely correct. I mean, our, our biggest exports, PGMs, actually. China's obviously a large, large proportion of that, too. And whether that the automotive market also rolls over in this is, is probably likely. But yeah, I mean, we haven't, we haven't been partaking in this resource boom now. It's, it's largely been through price and not volume. So we haven't really built new iron ore mines or uh, coal mines or PGM mines. It's really just been the run-up in price that has helped the, the South Africa out. So certainly if those prices fall back, it wouldn't be great for us. What impacts the RANDs and where the RAND will be, that's not something I know um, and certainly will not forecast. And that was Paul Whitburn of Rosendale Partners. At Bright Rock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's Thought Leadership feature made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Paul Hoffman from Accountability now joins me today. So, Paul, news broke this week that the Judicial Service Commission voted to uphold a gross misconduct finding against Western Cape Judge President Judge Hlope. So this paves the way for an impeachment process by Parliament. Just to start off with, uh, you wrote an article in, I think it was March this year, about Hlope, in which you said that the JSC did not believe that they had the standing to adjudicate on the matter. So what's changed? Uh, the, The position at the moment is that the Judicial Service Commission has, by a vote of eight to four, so it's a split decision, Mm -hmm. it has come to the conclusion that it has to recommend to Parliament to impeach. It's not the the function of the Judicial Service Commission to do the impeaching. It's it's their function to advise Parliament on it. And with this split decision, it has so decided. It, it, 
its majority is of the view that okay. uh, Judge President Schlorpe is guilty of gross misconduct in relation to the way that he meddled with the judges who were sitting on an important Jacob Zuma case just before Jacob Zuma became president for the first okay. time in South Africa, which was uh, 13 years. Well, it, uh, yeah, it was mm. a very long time ago. Let's put it mm. that way. And can you just unpack and the allegations? Is a, is of, a long time. It is a very long time. It's a, a long time coming. Um, can you unpack the allegations against Lope? Yes. In, in the, look, there are many others, and he has been on the carpet before, and the carpet at the JSC has lots of lumps in it because they've swept all previous cases against Schlorpe under the carpet. So let's leave them there for the purpose of this, this discussion because we haven't got all afternoon. In this case, the complainants are the then judges of the Constitutional Court, uh, two of whom were approached by Schlorpe to meddle in their decision-making process. That's a very polite way of saying that he was attempting to defeat the ends of justice by influencing the decision of an impartial and independent court that should be left to, to its own devices to come to a decision in the case. And it's that complaint that has taken 13 years to get to the point where we now have a vote. But that's not the end. It's mm. just the beginning of the end, or it might actually be the end of the beginning. Because the next thing that Schlorpe will do if he runs mm. true to form is that he will take on review the decision of the majority. That means he has to approach the high court. He will probably use the reasoning of the minority and maybe some other arguments of his own. We haven't seen either yet because uh, all we know is that the decision has been reached. We haven't seen the reasoning in the decision. Mm -hmm. So it's likely that he will uh, wish to exercise his right to review and that he does in the high court. And if he is unsuccessful in the high court, it is likely that he will appeal to the Supreme Court of Appeal. If he fails in the Supreme Court of Appeal, I can see your head is becoming more and more incredulous <laughs> as we go along. If he fails in the Supreme Court of Appeal, then uh, some will argue, well, that's the end of the matter and Parliament must now get on and uh, consider whether it is prepared to impeach him. Um, if, if the uh, Constitutional Court um, takes the attitude that it's not in the interest of justice for him to have another appeal to the very institution that has complained against him, because even though the judges are not the same judges anymore, it is that institution, that, 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 that the judges of that, you know, the justices of that institution that have laid the complaint, then uh, his litigation route ends uh, with a refusal of his application to go there. Of course, if they do let him in the door, he gets a, a further delay and a further um, opportunity to filibuster and uh, practice the Stalingrad strategy that uh, Jacob Zuma's made famous. Mm. So if he practices all these stalling tactics, potentially how long could this process take? Well, I have to tell you that the earliest date upon which he can retire is May 2024, and carefully handled, you could make all of mm. those, the reviews and appeals, uh, last until pretty well then or thereafter. But there's another strategy that he may follow. He may say, listen here, you need a two-thirds majority vote in Parliament. Um, he has friends definitely among the Travelgate fraudsters who were allowed to remain in Parliament because he rubber-stamped plea bargains that uh, kept, uh, kept them eligible to remain in Parliament. And, you know, he is the first black judge president in South Africa. I think he is regarded by the ANC caucus as a loyal friend and comrade of the ANC. So uh, where, where there is a split decision 
of the kind uh, that is, is apparently the, the situation in the Judicial Service Commission, then uh, with a fairly clear conscience, the friends of Schlope in the ANC caucus, who are numerous enough to uh, prevent the special majority that is required from being won in Parliament, will say, no, you can't, you can't possibly uh, impeach the first black judge president in South African history, and he will sail on all the way to his retirement, however soon or late he chooses to, to, to do so. The earliest he can retire is in 2024. If he chooses to, he can stay on until he's 70 and, and uh, uh, continue to dispense the form of justice that we have become used to from him in the Cape High Court. And what happens if he manages to stall till 2024 and he retires? Are yes. there any implications? Does he have any well, sort of benefits? Uh, if, or? Yeah, if, if, he, if he is impeached at any mm. stage, he loses his pension rights. Mm. But if, if he's not, in, and, and even if he's impeached after he retires, he will lose his pension okay. rights. But if he's not impeached, he won't lose his pension rights. So really, what, what this thing is about, uh, if, if it is handled in, in his traditional way of uh, using every uh, legal process and device available to him, is that there will be an argument about whether or not he should, should have a pension. There is another possibility, and that it came quite close to it at one stage long ago, and that is that a... Uh, a negotiated settlement can can be arranged, um, which you know, will will uh, have him out of office, but not out of his entire pension, and th- that that is a possibility. And I assume that's a sizely pension. <laughs> very very hard very hard to read it all. There are, I've given you three avenues that he can go mm. down. The first is to go straight to Parliament and say, mm. why me? I'm an innocent man and, mm. and rely on his friends in Parliament to, to thwart uh, an impeachment. Or if he's not confident about that, then he will, he will go the review appeal, appeal process and that too will take up a lot of time. The, the, the wild card in the mix is that the president has the discretion to suspend him. Hmm. And uh, that, or, that may or may not happen depending on, on uh, the, 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 pres- the, the president's own advice as to whether it's appropriate to suspend him. He, he went on voluntary garden leave years ago hmm. because of, of the, um, the heat that was on him. But when he got tired of gardening, he just came back to work and nobody could do anything about it. So. And when did Klopfer first come onto your radar? I'm afraid radar? it's not a very good reflection. Uh, that it's taken so long mm. is a very poor reflection on the commitment of the Judicial Service Commission mm. to the rule of law and to the right to a fair hearing mm. that is not delayed unnecessarily. Mm. And uh, uh, yeah, th- 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 there has been quite a serious dent to the credibility of the judiciary in South Africa. This thought leadership feature was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Thursday, August 26th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Turkish troops are pulling out of Afghanistan, while Turkey's president said he doesn't want his country to be a refugee warehouse. And we'll look at the latest wave of money laundering penalties on banks. Plus, a platform that allows porn stars to make money by selling their videos and other content to fans banned sexually explicit content. Then it reversed that ban. We'll talk about what happened. They have angered a lot of content creators who say that they now know they can't rely on OnlyFans because they realize now that the platform can kick them out at any moment. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Turkey yesterday said it's begun to withdraw its troops from Kabul airport. The country had offered to keep a battalion there to secure Afghanistan's link to the outside world. Apparently, that offer was rescinded. 
Meanwhile, Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, made it clear he doesn't want to take in any more Afghan refugees. Turkey's already home to the world's largest population of refugees, including 300,000 Afghans who've come in recent years. There's also more than three and a half million Syrians in the country. Erdogan now faces a growing political backlash against migrants. He also faces criticism for his handling of the economy and this summer's wildfires, which forced thousands of Turks to flee their homes. Global money laundering has surged, and banks have tried to crack down on criminals trying to hide ill-gotten money in their institutions, but it's unclear if new measures are having any effect. But what is clear is that regulators are getting tougher with anti-money laundering penalties. According to the risk consultancy Kroll, in the first half of this year, authorities levied almost a billion dollars in anti-money laundering, or AML, fines. Now, Banks have had a long time to improve these systems. You know, they've spent you know, billions of dollars. They've hired hundreds of people. They've, they've put in expensive AI monitoring systems. Um, but things are still getting through. As the FT's banking editor, Stephen Morris, he rattled off a laundry list of money laundering scandals in recent years. From the Danske Bank scandal of Russian money laundering a few years ago to in the Netherlands this year, where um, ABN AMRO has been fined um, a huge amount for repeated failings over a number of years following its local peer ING. So we're seeing a real toughening up on behalf of, of global regulatory powers, but particularly in Europe. It used to be the US leading these fines. Now it is Europe, namely the UK um, and the Netherlands. So are regulators just going after big established banks or are they also going after newer financial technology startups as well? Well, the fintechs, um, you know, fast growing companies, you know, in Europe, we have N26, Monzo, Revolut. They're acquiring customers at a rapid rate. Um, and re what regulators are saying is that their systems um, are not sophisticated enough to keep pace with this. Now, earlier on um, this year, in fact, just in July, Monzo revealed that it's being investigated by the FCA over potential breaches of AML laws. Um, which is obviously you know, very bad for them because it could result in several orders coming down. You know, slow your pace of customer acquisition. Don't go in these, um, don't uh, operate in these businesses. And its German rival N26 has twice been rebuked by its own domestic regulator, Baffin, for failures in its AML controls. And this was so serious that they've actually installed a special supervisor, external supervisor, to come in and oversee their remediation and improvement to these systems. So they're really cracking down both on the established, larger, traditional players, as well as these fast-growing new entrants. Stephen, is all this tough action by regulators making a dent in money laundering? Uh, no. Um, there are uh, you know, various estimates. Just one from the UK is that the um, money laundering costs the UK economy 100 billion a year. So no matter what, how much fines are levied, a lot of money laundering is still slipping through the net. And, you know, as technology increases and the IT sophistication of, of criminal syndicates increases, this is only going to continue. Um, and regulators are making the point that banks have to be an extension of law enforcement in rooting out um, these practices and stopping them. Stephen Morris is the FT's banking editor. The platform OnlyFans has gained a scintillating kind of fame as a place where sex workers and other celebrities can charge followers for content, like videos and photos. But last week, the company's CEO, Tim Stokely, made a shocking announcement that he would ban sexual content from the platform. You can imagine the reaction on social media. People were making jokes saying, you know, this is like Domino's banning pizza. That's the FT's Patricia Nilsson. She interviewed OnlyFans CEO Tim Stokely about his ban, and he blamed his bankers. He said they were worried about their reputation. So how on earth could OnlyFans survive without pornographic content? To be fair to the company, I mean, since they started growing so rapidly during the pandemic, they have added a lot of so-called mainstream creators, you know, sports stars, musicians, chefs, and they were hoping to grow this type of audience. Whether they will succeed or would have been successful without porn as well, it's hard to say. And I guess as it looks like right now, uh, we might never know. 
Yeah, and we might never know because Stokely yesterday pulled basically a 180 and reversed the porn ban. Uh, we'll get to that in just a, a minute. But P- Patricia, what went on with the banks? Or at least what did the committee say went on with the banks? So what they were saying was that uh, they were struggling to secure you know, corporate banking accounts, uh, or they were struggling to send money to their creators. Um, because between their bank and the bank of their creator, you will need to use a so-called intermediary bank. Um, and some of these, uh, the company called out BNY Mellon, for example, were, were flagging and, 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 and rejecting, uh, any type of wire transfer that had anything to do with, um, only fans. Um, this was the company told me becoming increasingly frustrating and, and they, they said, um, they were, they were beginning to fear they would get to a position where they wouldn't be able to pay their content creators. That's what the chief exec- executive, Tim Stokely told me earlier this week. Okay. So then Stokely reverses the ban. Why did he do that? Well, It's a little bit unclear. I mean, there have been a lot of reversals uh, in the past few days. And so the company said on Wednesday um, that it had received assurances from financial partners uh, that it would be able to bank. Um, The company wouldn't comment further. Um, I spoke to a couple of sources that basically told me that after um, Tim Stokely went out and criticized banks, a lot of the anger directed at OnlyFans transferred to banks and, and, and financial institutions and that they had since been receiving a lot of phone calls and, and, and that big banks were basically calling them up and saying, okay, we're ready to talk. Let's work this out. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's what we know right now. So Patricia, what's next for OnlyFans? Will any of this have any kind of effect on it? Well, one could say it, it seems like it's going to be business as usual. However, they have angered a lot of people. I mean, they have angered a lot of content creators who say that they now know they can't rely on OnlyFans. They have to diversify. They have to move to other platforms because they realize now that the platform can kick them out at any moment. The company is also planning a share sale as they're looking to bring in a new owner or kind of diversify its ownership. I mean, this is a porn entrepreneur called Leonid Redvinsky. He is the majority owner of the company and, and he's looking to sell part of his stake, essentially. And, and, and the company has told me that they're hoping to bring in some other investor who perhaps is more experienced in, in banking or, or even in media or sports, as, as I think when it comes to these mainstream content creators, they see sports stars as a very big potential. Patricia Nilsson is the FT's Consumer Industries Reporter. Thanks, Patricia. Thank you. Before we go, a quick update from Germany, where voters are heading into a big election next month. The field has been blown wide open. Angela Merkel's long-ruling Christian Democratic Union looked set to win, but it's been slipping in the polls. And for the first time in 15 years, the center-left Social Democratic Party has squeaked ahead of the CDU. The narrowing race means that for the first time in post-war history, Germany may be headed for a three-way coalition, and it could include the Green Party, which has held steady in third place, or the pro-business Free Democrats, which have been in fourth. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, thank you very much for being with us through this week. Just to remind you that the Biz News Power Hour is delivered from Mondays to Thursdays. On a Friday, you have Carrie's Corner uh, on Fine Music Radio, and uh, there is no broadcast on High FM in Johannesburg from our team until next week when Justin Rowe Roberts is going to be holding the fort and uh, taking taking command while the rest of us are in the Drakensberg. Justin, a, a daunting task, but I know you're well up to it. 
No, looking forward to the responsibility, Alec. I must be honest, it would be nice to be playing golf in the midst of the Drakensberg. <laughs> However, someone's got to keep the economy afloat, Alec. <laughs> and so you shall. Justin Rowe Roberts uh, is our man in Cape Town, and you can be sure he's got some real surprises lined up for you next week. Until we get back after the Biz News Investment Conference uh, next, uh, well, it's the it's the spring conference. Can you believe it? We'll be back. It'll be in spring again from the team here. Cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.